Good morning, and thank you to the praise team for setting the stage for our message this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, in our home, we don't have a cookie jar or a cookie tin. We have a cookie container. And uh, I'm rather fond of helping myself to the cookie container, uh, quite secretly, of course, without anybody else knowing. So don't tell my wife, my kids, that I'm doing this. So if it's on the counter, you know, I'll just pop up the top a little bit, sneak one out, and put it back down. Uh, but when the kids are around, they'd say, hey, who got a cookie out of here? Dad? Well, I'm not going to, I say, how do you know? Well, the corner of the lid is open. Well, I'm not going to tell them that I carefully put this lid back on because I would implicate myself as the guilty one. Uh, but I soon learned that the problem is when I lift up this corner, this one also comes up. So I was careful to put this one back, but I had failed to put this one back. So how do you respond to something like this? Well, can you be embarrassed? Can you lose your cookie privileges? Or like me, just work a little harder to cover my tracks? So now when I sneak a cookie, I make sure both corners are evenly snapped shut. But what about bigger issues of life? Uh, by the way, I, yeah, my cover's blown. I mean, the kids know that it's me. It's guilty as charged, but anyway. But what about bigger issues? You've made some poor choices in life. Perhaps there's some moral failures, cheating in your marriage, pornography, stealing at work or from local businesses, substance abuse, careless when it comes to temptations and sin, either in actions, attitudes, thoughts, etc., etc., etc. And now you live in fear and anxiety that the hammer is going to come down and you ask, how is God going to respond to my sin? Is God out to get me? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked that things are going not so well in life and you say, is God out to get me? Well, today in Genesis 3, we're going to look at two people who in a sense blew it far more than you or I ever can or ever will. And we're going to look and see how God responds to what they did. But first, before we do that, I'd like to offer a warning that uh, I offer to myself as well, to those of us who could tell the story from memory. Uh, Paul Tripp in his book, Dangerous Calling, says, there's a great danger to those who have constant contact with the things of God. What is the danger? It is that familiarity with the things of God will cause you to lose your awe. And so the warning that I speak to myself and that I've struggled with this week, I know this story well. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture, these early chapters of Genesis. And it's easy to get caught up in, yes, I know this, I know this, I know this. And we let the familiarity of the passage blind us to the truth it really brings. So I'd ask us to ask God to listen with new eyes. And whether we've known the Lord for six minutes or six decades, Let's ask him to show us something new or something old in a new way. So uh, before we continue on, I would just like to stop and, and pray for a little bit uh, again. So let's pray. Father, I ask that you, as we come to this passage, this is your word you have given to us. This is your holy word, your inspired, your inerrant, infallible word that you have given to us. And for reasons that I do not understand, you have entrusted the 
teaching and preaching of that and the study of that to fallible human beings. And so I pray that the message that comes forth this morning is your words, not the words of a man. The truth is your truth, not the ideas of this world. And we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to understand, as I say, new things or maybe some old things in new ways. Maybe we refresh, may we come away with a renewed vision of who you are and your relationship and desire for us. And I pray that you would not allow the familiarity of this passage to blind us to the truth it brings. So we entrust ourselves to you for this time we have together, knowing that it is your word that changes us, that transforms us. And we ask that you would indeed do that, that you would transform us in thought, word, or deed, or attitude, whatever it is that we need to be changed, that you would strike to the depths of our hearts. So we entrust this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're not already there, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 3. Uh, before we dig into this passage, though, we need to set the stage. We can't go into all the details, but I think it's important to set the background. So in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God creates. He makes the entire vast, beautiful universe by speaking it into existence. He calls it very good. And if you look at it, everything is working perfectly, exactly as it was intended to work. Then in Genesis 2, God plants a beautiful, bountiful, and lush garden in Eden. As I was thinking about this, any of us who've been to Longwood Gardens or a beautiful garden, I'm guessing that the Garden of Eden would make Longwood Gardens look like a desert. I mean, I just think that it was such a beautiful, lush, bountiful place. And in that garden, he places the man and woman that he created to work it and to keep it. And in the middle of the garden, he places the tree of life which would enable them to live forever as they ate of that fruit. But there's another tree there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there is one clear limit placed on Adam and Eve here. If you look in chapter 2, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, then we come to Genesis 3, the first six verses. And here we see the serpent which we find out later is the devil himself, comes to them and invites them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God has said, you should not eat of it. And he comes and invites them to eat. And he does so by saying that God is a liar. God is a liar who is selfish, who is mean. He is intentionally depriving you of things that would bring you happiness, pleasure, and fulfillment. And so Adam and Eve accept the serpent's evaluation of God's character and God's plans, they make their own independent assessment of the situation. They believe the lies about God's character. They conclude that God cannot be counted on to make them fulfilled and happy, so they need to take care of themselves. They act on that belief and eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, seeing no downside to what they are about to do. And at this point, we could rightly ask, how is God going to respond to this willful rebellion against his character and his commands. This is not just a rebellion against his commands, it's against his character, it's against his person. It's accusing him of being less than who he really is. How is he going to respond to that? Is God now out to get them? Is he going to make them pay? Well, let's now, we're gonna dig into this 
and we're going to look at God's responses. And there are basically two aspects to his response. And we're going to walk through this passage actually three times uh, looking at those responses. And I said there were two responses, and we're going through three times, so stay tuned. You'll see what the third one is. But as God promised in 2.17, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The consequences of their eating of that fruit are immediate and drastic. Death, sin, evil enters the world. If you look at verse 7, the first response, the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first recorded action is that they now hide from each other where they were once naked and unashamed, able to stand before one another with nothing to hide, nothing to be afraid of, they are now ashamed and fearful and they hide from each other. And in that hiding, they try to fix it themselves by making these flimsy coverings of leaves, sewing leaves together to make covering. You know, hiding is one of our responses to sin, isn't it? Remember the cookie container? Right? I'm happy to sneak a cookie out, but I don't want anybody to know that I did that. Uh, we, as Laurel and I were talking about this, we were reminded of one of our children as they were growing up. We had a picture frame, you know, one of those cheapo picture frames that was not a family heirloom. Uh, one day we found it on our bathroom sink broken. And that what had happened was uh, one of our children had broken the frame and hid it but their hiding place was our bathroom sink, so <laughs> it wasn't a real clever place to hide. But hiding is our natural response to when we do something wrong, right? That's, that's who we are, we hide, and this is what they do, they hid from each other. Then they try to fix their problem themselves by saying, okay, we got a problem, let's make these flimsy coverings. In chapter 12, uh, Adam starts blame shifting God says, well, what happened? Did you eat of the tree? And Adam says, well, that woman you gave me, gave me the fruit. So he blamed both Eve and God for this, his disobedience. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. It was God's fault, and it was Eve's fault. Blame shifting. Have you ever done that? Shift the blame? Then in chapter, or verse 16, the first part, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, the process of having and raising children will now be filled with pain. They were commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but now that process is going to be filled with pain. And I don't think it's just the childbirth process. I think it's the whole process of having children. And if those of us who've had children understand the pain, uh, and even when they're older uh, and out of the house and married with families of their own, there's still pain that comes along with that. And then in the last part of verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. There's conflict introduced into their relationship. Once where there had been perfect harmony, they were working together to accomplish the purposes that God had called them to do. There was now conflict. There was a power struggle within their relationship. Uh, and that's what that verse is talking about. In short, their perfect relationship with one another dies. God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And their previously perfect relationship with one another has now died. They are hiding from one another. They are blaming one another. 
they are living in conflict with one another. And then in verse 8, if we go back up there, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I put that verse on the bulletins for us. I just, to me, that's one of the most touching passages in the scripture. Can you imagine that? And again, let's go back to Longwood Gardens to those, some of you who have been here. It's a beautiful place. Can you imagine walking around and hearing the sounds of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day? What a beautiful thought that is to think that God, our creator, would be walking with us in that garden. However, things had changed because they were now afraid. And so what did they do? The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So instead of walking with God in perfect fellowship that they had before, they're now hiding from him in fear. And again, isn't that our relationship with God so many times marked by fear and trying to hide from him? So their perfect relationship with one another dies, their perfect relationship with God dies. And then down in verses 17 and to 19, God says to Adam, because you have eaten of this tree, the ground is cursed. And where once the the Creation was lush and productive. Its produce is now marred with thorns and thistles and back-breaking labor. God says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So their perfect life in this perfect garden dies. And then God says in verse 19, for you are dust and to dust you shall return where once they could eat of the tree of life and live forever, physical death enters the world. Physical death enters the world. And then perhaps one of the saddest things that happens here is in verse 23. The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. And if if that isn't bad enough, the writer says in verse 24, he drove them out. He didn't just send them out. He drove them out. He drove them out of this beautiful garden, and he prevents their return. The cherubim are angels, protecting angels, surrounding this garden, surrounding the tree of life. And if that is not enough, there's a flaming sword that turns every way to guard. He throws them out of the garden and prevents their return. So Adam and Eve, and that's why I said they sinned in a way that probably you and I never can in, in one sense of the word, They just broke the entirety of God's creation. They didn't break a picture frame and hide it in the bathroom. They just broke the entirety of God's creation. Their relationship with each other is severely broken. Their relationship with God is severely broken. Their relationship with the creation is severely broken. The principle of death has now entered into the world. And so far, God has only done what he said he would do. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So... The question I asked myself as I was going through this, well, if you were God, what would you do next? Is this the end of the line for them? Well, to answer that question, we need to go through Genesis 3 again to see what else God does in response. He has every right to wipe them from the face of the earth and to start over. Or perhaps not even to bother starting over. But let's not miss what God does here. And it's been my prayer through this, my study and preparation that his response will give us hope and lead us to deeper worship and love of him. 
So in the first part, he brought the, the consequences upon them by announcing the curse. But now he goes beyond the consequences and provides the cure. And so let's go through the passage a second time. If you look back again in verses 8 and 9, knowing what they had done, God knew what they had done. He, he, they weren't, you know, it's like me stealing cookies out of the cookie jar. It, it doesn't take, a well, cookie container. It doesn't take long for somebody to realize that, you know, somebody's been here. Well, God's no fool. He knew what they had done. So he's walking in the garden. He takes the initiative to actively look for them. And as we find out, it's not to lecture them. It's not to give them a piece of his mind. He calls out to Adam to draw him out. He says, Adam, where are you? It's not a question seeking information. He knows where Adam is. It's a question seeking relationship. Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? In verses 14 and 15, which is his first pronouncement, he curses the serpent. He condemns the serpent. He promises the serpent's eventual destruction and says that it will come at the hands of a descendant of the woman. And though, as we already looked at, the pronounced judgment on both Adam and Eve, he does allow for ongoing meaning and purpose in life. He commissions them to keep on living. He doesn't take it all away like we might be tempted to do as parents. I don't know if you've ever done this as, as, as parents. Okay, you've gotten a traffic ticket. You can never use the car again. All right, you violated your curfew and you stayed out too late with your friends. That's it. You can never go out with your friends again. Right? Were you over here or we're here? Is that what God does? No. Even though Eve is going to have pain in her childbirth and her child rearing, God does not take away the opportunity and privilege of raising children to be fruitful and multiply as he had originally commissioned them. And we find later that even though Adam's labor to provide for his family will now be accompanied by hard labor and weeds, God does not take away his ability to have meaningful labor and provision. And then in verse 21, verse so easily passed over, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Knowing they are ashamed of their nakedness, and they have made these flimsy fig leaf coverings for themselves, God gets rid of that self-made clothing and gives them sturdy, comfortable clothing that he personally made for them himself at the price of the life of an animal. I don't know if any of you have a tailor, but can you imagine a tailor better than God himself? Megan Hill, this is a quote from her uh, that I came across. What we wear tells a story about who we are. When God tailored the first clothes for Adam and Eve, clothes that I'm convinced were beautifully made and not at all the ragged Fred Flintstone outfits pictured in Sunday school materials, he was expressing something about who they were, fallen and yet tenderly cared for by God. Fallen and yet tenderly cared for by God. He knew their fearful, naked and ashamed condition and he took care of it for them. 
He didn't condemn them. He provided for them. He recognized that they were fallen, and yet he tenderly cared for them. Well, there's one more thing that God does here that I believe is easily missed but very profound. We already looked at that a little bit in verses 22 to 24. God drives them out of the garden, right? It says he sent them out, and then it says he drives them out. It's like, all right, you need to leave, and they're not leaving, and he drives them out of the garden. And he guards the entrance to prevent their return in what I'm going to say is an act of deep love, mercy, and grace. And I can imagine some of you say, what, are you crazy? This beautiful garden, he's now throwing them out, preventing their return. How is that loving, merciful, and gracious? We need to look at his reason. Look in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He does not now want them to eat of the tree of life and live forever. Get this. His original intent was for them to live forever. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden. They could eat this and would live forever. But now they live in a world that they have broken in which they are separated from God, they are separated from one another, and it's a place where death, hardship, and conflict rule. He does not want them to live forever in that state. Can you imagine living in a place forever where evil, hatred, fear, anxiety, violence, destruction, uncertainty, pain, we're always present, and where God is totally absent. In fact, I believe that to be a partial description of what hell will be like for eternity. So let's not miss this. To prevent them from living forever in their own self-created hell, he drives them out of the garden so it is impossible for them to eat of the tree of life. That is a step full of love, mercy, grace, and hope. And the bottom line here through our second trip through this passage is that in the midst of all the death and destruction brought on by Adam and Eve, God's response is full of love, mercy, grace, hope, and promise. He is still calling to them. He condemns the evil he allows them, he commissions them to continue to live in, in the midst of the pain of this world. And he protects them from living forever in their self-created hell. Well, what about us? Let's go back to the question we asked at the beginning. Is God out to get me? And again, has anybody ever asked that question? All right, a few honest people through here. Yeah, a couple. Yeah, I, I've asked that question, though I usually don't ask it out loud because I you know, God can't know what I'm thinking. He can just hear what I'm saying. So I just think it. So you have chosen to act based on your belief that God does not know how to be God. He certainly does not know how to take care of you, and he does not really mean what he says. Yeah, and I've heard this. I may have said it. I know what the Bible says, but you play God and figure out your own life, your way, your rights, 
and you've just blown it big time. You've made the worst decision of your life and the consequences are starting to come in. You're cheating on your wife, your husband, whether it's physically or emotionally. You're sexually involved with someone you're not married to. You know it's wrong, but you are very deeply entrenched. You're stealing from your employer. You're addicted to alcohol, drugs, and looking back on a long string of broken promises and broken relationships. You experience same-sex attraction and have a long series of one disappointing relationship after another. You have broken relationships with your children. You've let down people and God, and you sit around waiting for God to get you. Or maybe your sins are hidden in inner anger, bitterness, jealousy, pride, and you look at your troubled life and you say, is God out to get me? Is the hammer going to fall? We live in a world that is broken by our sinful rebellion against the God who made us for an abundant life. God created us. We have a sense within us that God created us for the beautiful and abundant life. But because of our sin, life does not work as it should. And we rightly ask, where is God? We're separated from him. We deserve to be separated from him. And so how is he going to respond? What does, we can see what does God do? And we can also see what does God do? not do. God's response to Adam and Eve's creation-destroying rebellion should give us hope. God's response to Adam and Eve's creation-destroying rebellion should give us hope. He brought on the consequences of their sin, for sure. He did not make light of what they had done, but he did not reject them. He did not reject them. Rather, he provided the cure. He came looking for them, not for harm, but to rescue them, to protect them, to preserve them because of his great love for them. And he promised that one day he would make right all the wrong they had done. He will do no less for us who also deserve God's judgment on our lives now as well as eternal separation from him and from all that is good. So we're going to go through this passage now a third time to get the larger picture of what God is doing here. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God promised to Adam and Eve. And he does the same for us too when we sin against him. So let's go back to, verses, to verse 9 in chapter 3. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God came looking for them. He did not leave them in their fallen state alone. He came looking for them. In Luke 19, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, calling out, Where are you? He came to seek and to save the lost. In John 3.17, it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus calls to us to come to him for rescue, forgiveness, and renewal. In Genesis 3.15, we see his curse on the serpent. He says, the offspring of the woman will be in conflict with the, with the serpent. And it says that he... The offspring of the woman shall bruise your head, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. God promises a child of Eve's who will bruise the serpent's head. Jesus is that offspring. Jesus is that offspring. In 1 John 3, John says, The reason the Son of God appeared 
was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is a fulfillment of this promise in Genesis 3.15. We brought the curse into the world. Jesus took the full weight of that curse on himself to rescue us and the world. He condemned sin, evil, and the devil himself. And in verse 21, we looked at the Lord God making clothes, garments of skins for Adam and Eve, finely tailored, I'm sure. Well, we find out that those who come to believe in Jesus are clothed with Jesus himself and his righteousness. Paul says in Galatians 3, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Have put on Christ. These animal skins in chapter 3, verse 21, were a foretaste of us being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ when he came and died for our sins and rose from the dead. And when we put our trust in him, Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ or those who believe in Christ, you have put on Christ. Infinitely better than animal skins, God clothes us himself with himself, with his righteousness purchased by Jesus at his expense, the expense of giving up his life by dying on the cross. And then finally in Genesis 3.24, we saw that God banished them from the garden and prevented any access to the tree of life so that Jesus could bring us to a new place. And if you'd like to follow along, I do invite you to turn to Revelation 21 as we go to the end of the story, the end of God's story. I'm going to read two passages. Revelation 21. And if you keep Genesis 3 ringing in your minds, just think what God is promising here in Revelation of where this is going, where this is going to end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will walk with them again in the garden in the cool of the day. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God is going to restore us, restore us to a place where all the effects of sin and our rebellion are gone, and he once more will dwell with us and us with him, and we will be able to hear the sounds of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and we will not hide from him in fear. We will be drawn to him in fellowship and love. And look at Gen uh, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, referring to Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, what's there? 
the tree of life. There it is. It's still there. It's still around. But now we have access to the tree of life because of what Jesus has done for us. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. There will be no light, need of light of a lamp or the sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This garden that God is preparing for us is going to be better than that original Eden. It will go on forever and ever and ever and ever with the tree of life in the middle of the garden. Because God came looking for us. As I was doing this, I was reminded of a story. My family, when our kids were young, were camping out in Prince Galitzin State Park out in western Pennsylvania. And uh, one of the kids, as I'm remembering, was four or five, I think, I wanted to go to the bathroom by herself, which was in the middle of the camp, within easy walking distance of where we were, and she wanted to go by herself. I said, that's fine, you can go. So she left, and I was just sort of watching, and she went. And then time passed, and she didn't come back. Time passed, she didn't come back. Time passed, she didn't come back. I started getting a little nervous, and so I went for her and couldn't find her anywhere. So it turns out she had gone in one door and gone out another one that was very similar looking to the one she had gone in. And she was walking, and by this time, I'm panicked. I don't know where this kid is and what's going to happen. And I'm looking at the masses of people in this camp trying to figure out where this girl is. And I gave away who, one of two choices of who it is. So I'm walking around frantically looking. And then finally, I see her walking down the path. And as I recall, I think she was just humming or singing something. Cool, calm. I found her, brought her back. And I wasn't looking for her in anger. I was looking for her in concern of love for her. And when I asked her how she was feeling during this time, as we talked about it later, I said, weren't you afraid? She said, nah, I knew you'd find me. Can we have that same confidence in God? But when we are lost, when we are struggling, we can sing, not because we know where we're going, not because we know our way out of this, but we know God's going to find us. That's who God is. That's what Jesus has done for us. So is God out to get you? No, he's out to find you. He's out looking for you. He is out to save you and safely shepherd you to live with him forever. He's out to draw you ever closer to himself. He's out to bring you safely to his eternal kingdom. The new heavens and the new earth where perfect righteousness exists and will continue forever. You know, we still sin. And in Jesus, God is still rescuing us, protecting us, preserving us. And it's not to minimize, this is not to minimize the consequences of sin, which are deep, very deep. Don't we still try to hide? Don't we still try to blame others? Don't we still try to fix it ourselves when we sin? So it's not to minimize the consequences of sin, which are deep, very deep. But this is to magnify the grace, mercy, and love of God 
that are far deeper than our sin, our guilt, our shame. He still provides the cure. He still calls us to himself. He still condemns sin. He still commissions us to an abundant life. And he clothes us with his righteousness. I was reminded of the refrain that we often hear, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again. And he's done all of that for us because he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He is not out to get us. He's out to find us. And his call to us, again, whether we've known him or whether we don't know him at all, or whether we've known him for six minutes or six decades, his call is to turn to him in faith, believing that he died for our sins, was raised from the dead, it is coming again to make all things right, and he's in the business of clothing us with the righteousness of Christ to change us from the inside out. I hope this reality surprises you and catches you a bit off guard. And I hope this truth leads you and me to a deeper hope in God, a deeper love for God, an awe of God, a worship of him and all that he has done for us. I'm going to pray in a moment in closing this part of our service. And the praise team is going to come and sing a song which I requested, which I'm grateful they were able to do it. It's a song called Jesus Strong and Kind. And it fits very well with this message. And it addresses four things. What Jesus is going to do, or what his invitation is, if I'm thirsty, if I'm weak, if I'm fearful, or if I'm lost. And if you listen carefully, there's a subtle but very important change in the last one. So let's listen and worship together as we keep these truths of Genesis 3 ringing in our ears. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had this morning to hear from your word, to hear from you. And we acknowledge that we are weak and frail people still prone to sin and follow our own ways and to doubt your love and mercy and grace for us. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to realize that in the midst of that, we do not need to hide from you, that you are looking for us, not to harm us, but to rescue us, to help us, to save us. And I pray that the wonder of that would be awakened in our hearts and lives, that we can be free to come to you when we have sinned or when we have failed, that we can come to you and confess our sin to you, knowing that you are going to accept us, you are going to receive us. Jesus has already died for that sin. He was risen from the dead, conquering the death that now holds us captive. And he is interceding for us at your right hand and is one day coming back for us to take us to that new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where the river of the water of life comes out from the throne, where the tree of life is there and we can eat and live forever. Lord, we look forward to that day. And in the meantime, I pray that you would help us to live in ever-growing trust in you and appreciation and love and enthusiasm for you and for what you have done for us. And so as we close with this, this song, may, it, may we leave singing it in our hearts as we remember the truth of this. We thank you that you have come for us, that you have rescued us and you have saved us. And I pray if there's someone here who does not know you, who have not put their faith in you, that perhaps today would be the day. And so we give all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.